isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And you can see this bridge from a little ways away. And it's a very frightening sight to behold. Yeah, it's... (laughs) (laughs) And you have to go over it. Yes. And go over it going and coming back. So if you want to get there you're either going to drive over that bridge or or fly in a plane. Right. So when we did it, literally, it was 100 years old, the bridge. And I was kind of looking for like recent inspection notices, (laughs) because it looks like a rickety old bridge with this huge span dropping down 250 feet to the river. So that was a little scary, I have to say. Yeah, just drive real fast across it. (laughs) And close your eyes. Close your, well, (laughs) yeah, you can. Yeah, not the driver. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. On today's episode, we're featuring the largest national park in the United States, a park that includes four mountain ranges, thousands of miles of glaciers, and the largest ice field in North America, Alaska's Wrangell-St. Elias National Park. And inside the park's 13 million acres of wilderness, we're taking you down a lonely 60-mile dead-end gravel road to two tiny historic towns where you can visit a former mining community, walk on a glacier, have a drink in the only historic saloon in a national park, and most likely see some of the large wildlife that call this place home. Thanks for joining us today as we travel the road to McCarthy inside Wrangell-St. Elias National Park. All right, as anyone who has planned trips to Alaska knows, traveling to Alaska's national parks takes a lot of planning because there are a lot of logistics and eight remote parks. There are eight remote parks. What if you live in Alaska? Then you just... Go out your back door and you're in a national park. (laughs) Right. Probably doesn't take as much planning as those of us who live in the lower 48. Yeah, there are eight national park national parks and a few other national park service sites. So there's a ton of incredible public land in the state of Alaska. There are, and it's huge. It's remote. Now, we did an episode, episode number 104, which was about planning your trips to Alaska's eight national parks. And we tried to kind of give people an idea of ways to group these parks, some ways to kind of make the planning process a little bit easier. Yeah, when we were originally going to all the national parks, it was the summer of 2010 we decided to visit four of the eight national parks in Alaska. Right, and then save the other four for another trip. 
On that first trip to Alaska, when we visited Wrangell St. Elias, we first flew to Juneau and then to Gustavus, where we visited Glacier Bay National Park. We spent three nights there, and that was a fantastic trip. And then we left Gustavus and flew back to Juneau, then to Anchorage. Uh, From there, we rented a car. We spent the night in Anchorage, and we drove to Copper Center at the Copper River Princess Wilderness Lodge. We stayed there for a couple of nights. And then from there, we drove into the park, Wrangell St. Elias, for the day on the McCarthy Road. So that was an entire day trip into Wrangell St. Elias. And from there, when we were finished, we drove up to Fairbanks and down to Denali National Park, spent two nights there. After we saw Denali, we drove down to Kenai Fjords National Park, spent two nights in Seward, then drove back to Anchorage and flew home. And that was a 10-day trip, seeing four of the eight national parks. And actually, the reason we decided to do it that way was because for us, those were the four easiest national park trips to plan. Those didn't involve any small planes. And so we thought we would get those taken care of and then the following summer tackle the other four more remote parks. And for us, it worked out well. That trip was four parks in 10 days. If we had tried to do all eight parks during that trip, we would have needed a lot more time. All right, Matt, let's talk about Wrangell St. Elias specifically. It is the largest U.S. national park. Karen, did you know that you could fit six Yellowstones inside Wrangell St. Elias National Park? And that's hard to believe because Yellowstone is a huge park. It is. Yeah. Six of those. Six of them. Wrangell has more than 13 million acres. And I found a few facts, special facts about Wrangell that we'll just mention really quickly. Uh, Matt, you already said it's the largest national park. It's also the largest wilderness area in the National Wilderness Preservation System. And it's designated a World Heritage Site. It also has four mountain ranges, Wrangell, St. Elias, Chugach, and the eastern part of the Alaskan Range. It also has Mount St. Elias at 18,008 feet. It's the second highest peak in the United States. And Karen, did you know nine of the 16 highest peaks in the United States are in this park? I know, that's pretty unbelievable. And Mount Wrangell, which is more than 14,000 feet tall, is one of the largest active volcanoes in North America. And there are also a lot of glaciers. Yeah, the Nabezna Glacier is about 53 miles long. It's the world's longest interior valley glacier. And the Hubbard Glacier is one of the largest and most active tidewater glaciers in North America. Matt, do you want to um, tell everyone the difference between an interior valley glacier and a tidewater glacier? Well, I could, sure. I I will do that. An interior valley glacier originates in the high alpine and then terminates on land. A tidewater glacier, on the other hand, Karen, is formed on land but then terminates in water. They often calve to produce floating chunks of glacier that we know now as icebergs. I see. And then there are also hanging glaciers. A hanging glacier begins in the high mountains, and rather than flowing uninterrupted, it stops abruptly, usually at a cliff, and then calves or produces avalanches and icefalls. It can also trigger 
rock falls and landslides. Well, this is really fascinating, Matt. Thank you for the glacier lesson. There are actually a lot more types of glaciers. Do you want me to tell you about those also? <laughs> no, you know, that's probably enough. We need to be moving on. So a lot of mountains, a lot of glaciers, a lot of wilderness. Karen, did you know, and I'll give give you just a little bit of history here uh, if for our listeners who like history. You know, it wasn't until 1978 that this area was even designated as a national monument. And then in 1979, it was designated a World Heritage Site. But it only took another year for President Jimmy Carter to designate the 13.2 million acres as Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve as part of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. He did that right as he was leaving office. He protected a ton of land in Alaska. There is such a short history here, park history. Of course, you know, human history goes back a long way in this area, but probably the most abbreviated park history we've ever done. That's why I let you do that. Oh, you let me do that? <laughs> Thank you, Karen. There's actually a little more interesting history coming up that yeah, we'll talk you, about. Could you do the geology of the park <laughs> next? I'll let you do that. I'll let you okay. do the geology. All right, good. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we're going to talk about how we visited the park and how a lot of people do too, because from the Anchorage airport, which, you know, assuming that's where you're going to be flying in and out of, driving there from Anchorage airport to Copper Center, it's about a three and a half hour drive to the east. And Copper Center is the little town that sits just outside the park, but there is a pretty big visitor center there. Yeah, the Copper Center Visitor Center Complex is the place that you really want to start your visit. That's where you want to go, get your orientation, talk to a ranger, get all the information you need to make your visit the best it can be. Right. It's kind of like a campus there. It's got not just the visitor center, but it has a bookstore, an exhibit hall, a theater, picnic tables, a picnic shelter, an amphitheater, and it has some scenic overlooks and short hiking trails. So you can look at the exhibits, um, watch the park movie. We always love to do that. Hike the nature trail, shop in the bookstore, and get all the information you need before setting out. Also in this complex is the park administration and business office. So it is kind of this little complex right on the Richardson Highway. And it's not super easy to get into the park from there. I think it uh, the visitor center overlooks the valley there. There's the Copper River, which I think is is the boundary of the park. And so there's no real easy way to get across the Copper River into the park. So we'll talk about a couple of the roads that you'd want to take going into the park. There are actually only two roads that you can drive into the park. There's the Nebesna Road and the McCarthy Road. Both of these are gravel roads that are maintained by the state of Alaska, not the NPS. These roads are open year-round, but they're only maintained during the summer. And it says on the website that both roads are usually passable to all vehicles during the summer months. I think the all vehicles, <laughs> maybe you want to take that with a grain of salt. I'm not sure all vehicles would be correct. Well, it also says on the website that it's not recommended for oversized vehicles like RVs, buses, 
you know, et cetera, motorhomes, those those types of vehicles. Now, today we're going to talk about one of those two, the McCarthy Road. And this road leads to the historic towns of Kennecott and McCarthy. And it used to be called, well, I've heard it called the worst road in America. And we've also heard it called the worst road in Alaska. So we were expecting it to be really bad. However, since 2005, I guess the state of Alaska has spent millions of dollars maintaining and upgrading this this gravel road. Yeah, I think they had really no choice <laughs> if they wanted to let people drive back to McCarthy and Kennecott. Sometimes they're washboarded. When we drove it, we really had two choices of speeds to go, either 10 miles an hour or about 35. <laughs> because I found that the faster I drove, I, I could drive a certain speed and just skim across the top of the washboards. And that, that helped a little. Yes. And we will talk about our specific trip in a second. But I do have a little history about this road, just the road. All right, Karen, give it to us. Okay, so the McCarthy Road is 59 miles long, and it connects the little town of Chitna with, as we said, the historic town of McCarthy. Now, the cool thing about the Scrabble Road is that it follows what was once the railroad tracks of the Copper River and Northwestern Railway, which was created to connect the Kennecott Copper Mine with the coastal town of Cordova. So when ore was loaded into these rail cars, it was sent to Cordova and from there, Matt, it was sent by barge to Tacoma, Washington, which is very close to where we are, where it was smelted. You got to smelt the ore. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is a big smelter in Tacoma. And it's kind of cool to think that this copper from Kennecott made its way all the way to Tacoma. Yeah, and you can still smell it. <laughs> right, exactly. When you go through Tacoma. <laughs> the aroma of Tacoma, isn't that what they call it? Mm hmm. All right, so this railway, they started construction in 1907. It was 196 miles long. And they when they built it, they had to cross over mountains and glaciers and river rapids. And it cost $25 million to build. It included 44 miles of bridges and trestles, many of which were wiped out each spring and had to be rebuilt. So it took four years to build this railway. And on its maiden voyage, there was already a quarter of a million dollars worth of copper ore waiting for it. Yeah, waiting to go to Tacoma to be smelted. <laughs> to be smelted. Now, a couple of things about the little towns of Kennecott and McCarthy Kennecott was the company mining town, and as such, it was declared dry, as in no alcohol. So that led to the rise of its sister town, McCarthy, built to make up for what Kennecott was missing, and it was their version of Sin City. Yeah, during three wild decades, it had bars, brothels, pool halls, and the rest of the services required for a population of about 600 300 people who worked at the mill and two to 300 who worked in the mines. And then in 1938, $200 million worth of copper deposits later, the reserves ran out. So the mining stopped, the train stopped, and the settlement was abandoned so abruptly that plates were left on tables. In 1938, when the last train pulled out of Kennecott, tables in the dining hall were fully set with dishes, plates, and silverware. But no people. They all disappeared, leaving these spectacular buildings behind. And when the large-scale mining ended, 
the rails of this railroad were no longer maintained. So in the 1960s, the railroad handed over the land and the liability to the newly established state of Alaska, which promptly began pulling up the tracks and creating the road. And now this former railbed is a gravel road that will take you to amazing scenery, wilderness, and adventure. And the rest is history, Karen. So just a couple of things about the road. It is seasonal and usually opens in mid-May and is maintained until mid-September. You want to plan for a minimum of two and a half hours one way to drive it. Yeah, and make sure you have a spare tire, a full-size spare tire at that, and make sure you know how to change a tire. Well, that's pretty key. (laughs) Yeah, there are no services on the road, so don't expect phone or internet service. Take some emergency food, some water, a first aid kit, some clothing. Be prepared. That's right. Be prepared. You want to make sure you have a full tank of gas. You can fill up in Glen Allen or Chitna. And most of the big rental car companies in Alaska do not allow their rental cars to go on gravel roads. And that would include this one. But check the local rental car companies because I think people have had a lot of success with the local car companies. Yeah, and I would plan to uh, spend at least one night in McCarthy. It's it's a long enough trip there and back in one day, which is what we did. But in hindsight, we, we probably should have spent at least one night there. Yes, that's one of the things we regret about our trip is that we did not spend the night. But let's talk about what we did do. Yeah, well, first of all, we drove the McCarthy Road, and it starts in the little town of Chitna, which has about 120 people. And if you're planning to drive the road, I, I would not rely on Chitna to have a lot of supplies if you're driving the road. You might want to do that before just in case. Yes. So from where we stayed in Copper Center, it took us about an hour to drive from our hotel to Chitna. And there is a little local ranger station. So we visited the ranger station, got a paper map, and then we took off from there. As we started out, the first 10 miles was really, really rough. It was washboarded, had a lot of potholes. Yeah, we didn't think we were going to make it to Kennecott and back in the same day. It it was taking so long. Well, exactly. We were seriously driving 5 to 10 miles an hour. So, I mean, you can figure out if you're doing 10 miles an hour and it's 60 miles, it's going to take you six hours to get there. And of course, six hours to go back. So that first hour, we were thinking that we were just going to have to bag the whole thing. But it did improve. And I think you got up to almost 30 miles an hour, maybe in some spots. Yeah, there, there were spots where One, there were some spots that actually flattened out, so we were able to go faster. And then on some of the washboarding, I just drove faster. I mean, you can can get to a point with that washboarding if it's pretty consistent that the faster you go, you'll hit a speed at which it kind of actually smooths out some. (laughs) Sometimes that's pretty fast, so you got to be careful with that. But yeah, we were trying everything to move it along a little bit faster. Along this road, oftentimes you are driving through forests, so there isn't a view, but sometimes there were peekaboo views of the of the mountains, and it was spectacular. Yeah, there's not a lot of views of the mountains, so just know that when you're you're going there, when you're driving this road. One really cool thing along this road is the is the Cuscalana Cuscalana Bridge, which is at about mile seventeen. Now, this is a former railroad bridge built in 1910, and it's 
located about 250 feet above the river. It's narrow, it's single lane, and it spans 525 feet. And you can see this bridge from a little ways away. And it's a very frightening sight to behold. Yeah, it's... (laughs) And you have to go over it. Yes. And go over it going and coming back. So if you want to get there... You're either going to drive over that bridge or, or fly in a plane. Right. So when we did it, literally, it was 100 years old, the bridge. And I was kind of looking for like recent inspection notices <laughs> because it looks like a rickety old bridge, again, with this huge span dropping down 250 feet to the river. So that was a little scary, I have to say. Yeah, you just drive real fast across it. <laughs> and close your eyes. Close your, well... <laughs> Yeah, you can. (laughs) Yeah, not the driver, maybe. Yeah, so at the end of the road, so mile marker 59, we parked our car in, there was a big parking area, and we thought we were there, but we weren't, because (laughs) uh, no vehicles could access past that point, and so there was a footbridge, and we thought for a moment that we would have to hike from that footbridge all the way to McCarthy or Kennecott. However, there is a shuttle bus and it was sitting right there ready to pick us up and take us the half mile to the town of McCarthy. Yes. And so we were lucky the shuttle was there. I don't know how long the wait is if it's not sitting there when you get there, but you could certainly walk the half a mile. And then when you get to McCarthy, Kennecott is about four and a half miles away. So you can either walk there, that's a long walk, or you can take the shuttle. So there's two options to and from Kennecott from McCarthy. There is the Coppertown shuttle, which is free, or the Blackburn Heritage shuttle, which costs $5 each way. And both of these run hourly. So we didn't have any trouble picking up a shuttle either place. And I know we, I remember we paid $5, so we must have been on the Blackburn Heritage one. And I don't remember that drive being particularly interesting, meaning I'm not sure it's worth walking the four and a half miles just to see the scenery. Right. I think the scenery improves dramatically when you get to Kennecott and there's, yeah, there's some great hikes there. But if, if you think you're going to be at in the park, seeing uh, you know these expansive vistas, it's probably not on that four and a half miles. Yeah, your time is better spent doing something else than walking that. So definitely grab a shuttle because there are a lot of other cool things to do. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So Matt, let's talk about Kennecott, the old mining town that the Park Service is restoring. Yeah, this is pretty cool. A little historic town. Well, not little. It's kind of has has a lot of facilities there. Yeah, in June of 1998, the National Park Service acquired many of the buildings and land of this historic town of Kennecott. Um, You know, this area was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1978, then designated a National Historic Landmark in 1986. And it is considered the best remaining example of early 20th century copper mining. 
That's right. And you know, that might not sound terribly exciting, but it really is remarkable because you kind of walk across this um, bridge after the shuttle drops you off. And the first thing you see is the iconic wooden concentration mill building, which is 14 stories high. And it was built up against the side of a small mountain. Now, this mill is considered to be the tallest wooden building in America. And one other thing I loved is all of these buildings in Kennecott are painted kind of this red, almost like a barn red. Right. And so it's very charming. It kind of pulls the whole look together. But they have been working specifically on the mill building for years and years. And in 2021, the Park Service announced that they had finished stabilizing five more floors of the building. Um, They used local carpenters, and they had to do apparently extensive manual labor because they were finding blasting caps along the way. Yeah, you got to watch the blasting caps. Those things go off. They can really hurt somebody. Yeah, kind of hazardous working conditions for those carpenters there. But in previous years, they had, I guess, stabilized other floors of the mill. So that's the first thing you see, and that's really impressive. Yeah, that's the thing you'll see in all the photos. Right. Now, they also have the general store and post office there. uh, And those are well preserved and they have an extensive collection of exhibits in those buildings. I know the general store felt like, well, it is. It's still a general store. Yeah. And what they did there, which was really cool, is they made it look exactly like it did when this was a company mill town. So they have stocked it with goods that would have been for sale back then. So it looks very authentic when you go into the general store. Yeah, we went in there, looked around. We also, uh, there was a little informative film that we watched, the Kennecott Mill. Also, there were bear safety videos and a park movie called The Crown of the Continent. And that educated us on bear behavior. Yes, which we needed to know for our upcoming hike. Now, the National Park Service has been fixing up a lot of these buildings, and they have had help from the local community and a group called the Friends of Kennecott. So they have been engaged in ongoing planning to identify which buildings are going to be stabilized and which ones are too far gone. But their goal is to protect the integrity of this mill town. A couple more buildings we'll just mention real quick. The Recreation Hall, the renovation was completed in 2004, and that's used for educational programs and community events. And the Blackburn School, which now serves as the park's visitor center, at least the the visitor center there in Kennecott, uh, and then other buildings have received repairs. They've done a great job. They have done a fantastic job. You know, when we were there, and I think every summer, it's bustling with activity and workers and they're, you know, they are still working and fixing up these buildings. So one thing you can do when you get there, you can pick up a map of this uh, Kennecott area and you can do your own walking tour and check out all of these different buildings and what they used to be. Now, most of them you cannot go in, except for the ones we mentioned, but it's still very cool to see. Yeah, so we looked around the town, watched the park movie, and then decided to go for a hike. But before we did that, we threw away our salmon jerky that was in our backpack uh, (laughs) after watching the bear safety video. We figured it wasn't a, a good idea to have an open bag of salmon jerky 
in our backpack as we hiked through bear country. Yeah, like like you said, Matt, the salmon was open and we could smell it. So if we could smell the salmon through our backpacks, we wouldn't stand a chance against those bears out there because, of course, their sense of smell is so much better than ours. In the visitor center, we saw rubber molds of animal tracks and they had a black bear and a brown bear paw print. The brown bear paw print was huge, like like a dinosaur <laughs> or Godzilla. It was it was strikingly huge. Right, with those long pointy claws on the end. Yeah, the claws. The claws will get you. Yeah, you do not want to run into that on a hike. No, very scary. Very scary. And the thing is, is we did not have bear spray with us on this trip because, you know, we flew there and you can't bring bear spray on a plane. But also because we were newbies and we didn't really understand that you shouldn't hike anywhere in Alaska without bear spray. Yeah, in hindsight, we should have bought some in Anchorage and then left it at the airport on our way home. It's great that some parks like Yellowstone now rent spray. Yeah, it is great for visitors who can't fly with bear spray. So, you know, if you're traveling to some of these parks where you definitely should carry bear spray, you might check ahead of time and see if they have a rental program, because I think a lot of parks are starting that. Yeah, There are multiple hiking choices when you're there. Some of these are all-day long hikes that we didn't have time for. And I think if you're only going to do one, probably the best bang for your effort is to hike to Root Glacier. Yeah, I wish we would have hiked on the Root Glacier. We we hiked to the toe. It was a four-mile round trip from the little town of Kennecott. And so we did not have really the experience or the equipment to hike on the glacier itself. It was summertime. We weren't totally sure if the ice was stable. You really want to do that with a guide. You absolutely do, because the Root Glacier can be slippery and dangerous, and crampons are strongly recommended. They say avoid walking along the edge of Root Glacier because there is rotting ice and swift cold water all of which are potentially dangerous. So you really want to know what you're doing and have crampons. Now, we did see a group of people who were on the glacier as part of a guided trip. Yeah, and the guides know what they're doing. They know Mm -hmm. the condition of the ice because they're there all the time, and and they know what equipment you need. So that's your best bet. Uh, And I have to say, having gone there and hiked to the toe of the glacier, I wish we would have signed up with a guide and and done that. Yes. So there is an outfitter in Kennecott that will take you on to the glacier. I was looking at their website. They offer half day trips and full day trips to go further back. It does look amazing. However, you know, just going to the, well, it's called the toe, but basically for us, it was the, I would say it was the base of the glacier, the foot, the toe, whatever. That was amazing to see this blue, blue glacier coming down. We had just been in Glacier Bay National Park, and we had seen those incredible glaciers, but we were on a boat. So it was a little bit different to see it standing there. Right. Yeah, it would have been fun to hike across it. But we hiked back to town, uh, back to Kennecott, and then we caught the shuttle to McCarthy and looked around McCarthy a little bit. Yes, it's a darling little, very small town. Although in one time in history, McCarthy was the largest city in Alaska. Of course, this was before Anchorage uh, was created. And in 2006, McCarthy celebrated its centennial. Yeah, 
But yeah. now there's only about 100 people who live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have some facilities. They have the McCarthy Cabins. They have Mog Johnson's Historic Hotel. Yeah, so a couple places to stay there. They also have a saloon. <laughs> the Golden Saloon. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. st- we stopped in there and had a beer and a snack. Yeah, also the Roadside Potato Head. It opened in 2015, so it wasn't there when we visited, but uh, it gets good reviews. It's the number one restaurant in McCarthy, Matt. <laughs> it's it. <laughs> uh, so they must be doing something right, Karen. <laughs> right, right. There is another lodging option over on the Kennecott side called the Kennecott Glacier Lodge, so you could also stay there. Yeah, so when you're in the Kennecott-McCarthy area, you're almost smack dab in the middle of the park. So you're in it, and the mountains are right there. And it really is, I know we use the word spectacular a lot. The national parks in the lower 48 states, there are incredible views. But when you get to Alaska, it's it's a different scale. In Kennecott, you're looking at this massive mountain range, snow-capped mountains, glaciers, and it's all National Park as far as you can see. And so the scale is just different up there. Yeah, and the weather changes so quickly. We have a picture of, I'm not sure which mountain it is in Wrangell, but the most incredible clouds we have ever seen in our life were, were hovering around the mountains. And then there were some rainbows that came in because it was raining over there. I mean, it is jaw-dropping, unbelievable, especially, you know, that was our first trip to Alaska, but I think this park in particular has so much diversity. You know, when we went to um, Katmai, we were focused on seeing the brown bears, but in this park, this has everything. Right. And again, a lot of times when we're in the national parks, other places, you see a lot of people and you kind of feel at times like it's been kind of overrun by people and every nook and cranny of the park has been explored in the Alaska parks. You do get the sense, especially Wrangell St. Elias, that there is this huge expanse of wilderness that's really preserved in the national park where people aren't crawling over every hill and valley. You can really get away from things here. Now we did not see any wildlife on our hike to um, Root Glacier. But as we were driving away (laughs) and heading back to Copper Center, a black bear ran out and crossed the road right in front of our car. That was our wildlife sighting. Yeah. So we had the black bear. So we're going to talk about a couple of other things you could do. One thing I wanted to mention is that a lot of people go on flight scene trips over the park. And as much as I don't care for small planes, that would be an amazing way to see the park. Yeah, a flight seeing trip over Wrangell St. Elias would be pretty spectacular, I guess. When we stayed at the Copper River Princess Lodge, it's affiliated with Princess Cruises, and they had a lot of their cruise ship passengers there who were doing flight seeing trips. And one of the reasons is because you just can't get a bus back to Kennecott. Right. So they had that option to um, to go on a plane. But we've never done a cruise or like a big tour group trip like that. And I remember I was really surprised when I opened the door to our hotel room the morning we were checking out. And at every other door down the entire hallway, there was um, a suitcase or two standing right outside the door. Yeah. So an employee from the cruise line picks up the luggage, 
and puts it in the bus and takes it to their next destination. It concerned me seeing that because I was pretty sure that the next morning you were going to put your luggage outside our room <laughs> as a sign for me to put it in the car. But you you would know what would happen if you tried that, right? Well, yes, because you have made it clear, I think since the day we were married, about your rule. What is it? You pack it, you carry it. Right, right. At, mm-hmm. the, at the end of the day, I think you would be asking where your luggage is. <laughs> I'd say, well, I think I saw it in the hallway at, at our right. last hotel. Probably still there. You might want to call them. <laughs> right. I would be going commando for the rest of the trip. Yes, you would. <laughs> but it was such a novel idea to me that you mean they just put their suitcases outside the door and they don't have to think about them again and someone picks them up and takes them not only that but then brings them to their next room yeah that's like, not the world we live in karen <laughs> i'm just telling you right now may, no, maybe in your next life but, but <laughs> that's not coming to smith travel anytime soon all right well something to dream about Another thing that you could do, which I didn't realize this, um, that there is a river rafting trip right out of Kennecott. The only reason we know about this is because if you listen to our episode with Grandma Joy and Brad, um, Grandma Joy's road trip, that's what they did when they went to Kennecott. They did a half-day river rafting trip on the Kennecott River. Yeah, they put you in survival gear, and (laughs) you can go down class Two and three rivers. And uh, yeah, I guess that's a pretty fun thing to do. Yes. If you are interested in river rafting trips, this outfitter, and we'll put the link in our show notes, they offer multi-day trips inside the park at other locations as well. So river rafting is a big thing to do in Wrangell St. Elias. Yeah. I'd like to paddle around icebergs. How can you do that? That's the half-day Kennecott River rafting trip. Yeah, and apparently. you jump in the water, I guess, if, mm-hmm. if you have a dry suit on. Yes, they have dry suits on. Grandma Joyce said it was a little bit of a struggle to put it on. <laughs> okay, we'll put uh, links to those in the show notes of this episode. Right. Now, if you want to go back and you want to see Kennecott and McCarthy, but you don't want to drive, you can leave the driving to someone else. Oh, there's a shuttle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, yes. You can take the Kennecott shuttle, which picks up at hotels and bed and breakfast campgrounds, RV parks in the Copper River Valley. And that provides transportation to Kennecott River footbridge, where passengers can go from there. They can walk across the bridge. Right. And then from there, you just take the local shuttles like we did. So that's definitely an option if you don't want to drive or if you have a rental car that does not allow you to drive. But we would recommend, since it's not the worst road in America anymore, we kind of think that driving on the road to McCarthy is just part of the adventure. Yeah, they've uh, improved the road, so it's 59 miles. It shouldn't take you two and a half hours to drive it one way, but you still might want to plan on that. Yeah, they still suggest that it could take two to three hours, so I think they want people to take it nice and slow. But spend the night... And then you're not driving out there and back on the same day. Okay, so that about wraps it up for Wrangell St. Elias. It's such a gift to all of us that the mining district of Kennecott has been saved and the road to McCarthy has been preserved and maintained and we can all travel back and forth to see this part of the park. That's right. And we can get a glimpse of what life was like back there. 
more than 100 years ago. Wrangell St. Elias is one of those parks that has something for everyone. So whether you're driving the McCarthy Road, exploring a historic mill town, rafting the rivers, traversing the glaciers, or flying over the vast wilderness, you can have whatever kind of adventure you want to have there. Yeah, you sure can. Okay, folks, that wraps up our episode for today. Thank you all for joining us today. And if you would like to see some photos from this trip, be sure to follow us on Instagram. You can find us at Matt and Karen Smith. And if you've been enjoying our podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And you can leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts even if you listened to our episodes on another platform like Spotify. That's right. We would be very grateful for that. Mm-hmm.